0: What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Jack Grotzinger, the co-founder and CEO of ticketing platform SeatGeek. After becoming frustrated with scams and a lack of transparency on the secondary market, Jack co-founded SeatGeek in 2009. But now, 12 years later and one global pandemic, SeatGeek is going public via SPAC at a $1.35 billion valuation. Jack walks me through the business from its founding to its present scale, breaking down the economics, how COVID impacted their cash flow, the future of NFTs in sports, and more. This was an awesome conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach. Monitor your recovery, sleep, training, and health with personalized recommendations and coaching feedback with Whoop. Train smarter, recover faster, sleep better, and now feel healthier with Whoop and their all-new Whoop 4.0 the latest, most advanced fitness wearable on the market. The all-new 4.0 is smaller, smarter, and designed with new biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. The device also features an all-new smart alarm, designed to wake you up feeling refreshed and ready to take on the day. Plus, it was designed with their new Anywhere technology, so you can wear it with their new Whoop Body Sensor Enhanced Technical Garments, boxers, shorts, compression tops, leggings, and more. Just remove the band from the device and slide it into your garment of choice and you're discreetly tracking your daily activity with Whoop. I've been wearing Whoop for over a year now and it's drastically improved the way I approach fitness and think about my recovery. Not only is the device comfortable to wear, the app packs a ton of health information into a simple display that's easy to understand. Get the all new waterproof device for free when you sign up for Whoop. 4.0 4.0 membership for any members if you have six months left on your membership you can upgrade now and get the 4.0 for free but here's the best part whoop is offering 15 percent off when you use code joe at checkout go to whoop w-h-o-o-p and enter joe j-o-e at checkout to save 15 percent next up is public rec are you looking to upgrade your baggy sweats it's time to check out public rec their best-selling all-day everyday pant is the perfect combination of indoor comfort and outdoor style myself along with thousands of others, are wearing these. And trust me, they live up to the height. Finally, a more stylish alternative to sweatpants that are way more comfortable than jeans. Now, your favorite lounge pants can also be your go-tos for work, happy hour, and the gym. After a year at home, they are definitely the pants you need, now that you need pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now, they have an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to publicrec.com and use promo code HUDDLE, H-U-D-D-L-E, to receive 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by CoinCloud. Did you know you don't need a bank account to buy crypto? CoinCloud makes it easy to buy or sell Bitcoin and 30 plus other digital assets with their digital currency machines. It's the most convenient way to make a transaction. With thousands of machines across the country, there's no need to connect your bank account or wait in lines. Plus, they offer live 24-7 US-based customer support. Simply put, CoinCloud wants to make it easy for you to get involved in crypto. Get $50 off in free Bitcoin when you buy $200 or more at any CoinCloud machine and use the promo code Joe. You heard that right. That's free Bitcoin. For details, go to coin.cloud slash Joe. That's coin.cloud slash Joe. And don't forget to use promo code Joe for free Bitcoin. Jack, thanks again for doing this today. I really appreciate you taking the time. There's a bunch of stuff I want to talk about with you. A lot has happened, uh, not only in the ticketing world, but in sports in general over the past year. But before we get to all that, maybe let's just start with kind of a foundation. And if you could just talk through briefly kind of how you came up with SeatGeek, the idea, how you got it off the ground, et cetera, that might be helpful.
1: I am a sports and music fan, first and foremost. So grew up in Cleveland, going to a ton of Cleveland sports games and moved to Boston. One of my co-founders, Russ, and I did the same and we were just blown away honestly by how broken the ticketing market was and the user experience of actually buying tickets to go to a game or a show and thought that there must be a better way so initially got into the industry by specifically trying to use analytics to help people find better deals and buy tickets at the right time our thinking was that that was kind of a lightweight way that we could make the process easier and over the last 12 years SeatGeeks. Grown a bit in scope, we sort of found more ways to hopefully radically improve the process. We you know, launched a mobile app before that was an obvious thing to do, and more recently, uh, got into the enterprise side of our our world by working directly with teams and venues.
0: So let's double click a little bit on on the early part of that story, right? Which is uh, buying tickets on the secondary market back in this is two thousand eight, two thousand nine, right? So uh, what feels like a very long time ago, but really not that long ago. When you were buying tickets previously, just as a fan going to concerts, going to sporting events, what was that process like and what annoyed you about that process?
1: A few things. First of all, a lot of it happened on Craigslist or in person with people you didn't necessarily know. So there was a really meaningful amount of fraud. And even if you weren't actually being defrauded, there was always this lurking feeling that you might be, this uneasiness that came along with it. There's also not a lot of price transparency. Ticketing is different for many industries in that you could think of, if a, if a ticket would hit a SKU, like a barcode, you can think about every ticket having a, a different SKU, but there being only a quantity of one each, which is different from, I don't know, buying an iPhone where the, the price and the value is well known in that case. In case a ticketing, it's not obvious what you should pay. And as a result, it's very easy to get ripped off. Or even if you don't get ripped off, given that it's hard to know the underlying value, you always have that feeling that you might have, so ultimately, I think what's really a shame about that is that it historically has led to people doing less stuff, you know, to going into fewer shows, fewer games. And uh, we're trying to solve that.
0: Yeah, uh, I can speak from personal experience and I'm sure anyone else can that has <laughs> uh, been either ripped off or deceived or uh, worked with a, a ticket broker of some type that it, it's a frustrating process for sure. So you have this idea, right? You and your co-founder have this idea. Do you initially go out and raise money or do you try to bootstrap it for
1: a bit? We For about a year, maybe a little bit less. And then we raised our first seed round in 2010.
0: Okay. And what was that process like? Were people interested immediately? Uh, Did you get a bunch of no's? Just walk me through that.
1: Got a bunch of no's. Got a few yeses. That was back right after there was a real meaningful financial crisis. So it was a particularly hard time to raise money. And we were also doing it in New York when that was a less trendy thing to do. So we also had a lot of people asking us, why now? And why are you doing this here? but we stuck with it and really the thing that made the process a bit easier was that we began to get traction not a ton of traction but enough that we could show you know meaningful week over week growth and few investors were willing to, to take a bet on us, which I'm very grateful for.
0: Yeah, of course. I think, uh, every founder that has had some success, uh, especially back in those times has a story of a bunch of people saying no. Right. <laughs> and, yep. uh, you remember those people, but it's certainly helpful to get some yeses along the way also. So let's, let's, uh, zoom back out and let's go to maybe like 2019, 2020, right? Walk me through the process from 20, 2009 the next decade to 2019, actually building SeatGeek. Uh, you guys were doing a meaningfully more amount of revenue. You had some traction, uh, a bunch of users here, especially in the United States and some abroad. Just walk me through kind of where the business
1: grew and how you did it. You're talking before COVID, right? Yes, before, before uh, COVID. The last few years. Yeah. Yeah, so ultimately what makes SeatGeek different from everyone else out there is that we're vertically integrated, meaning we work directly with teams and rights holders, building enterprise software that they use to run their venue, run their business. We also have a set of apps that fans use to buy tickets and we do everything in between. And ultimately that, you know, we believe enables us to offer just a much better user experience than would otherwise be possible. So as fast forward into 2019, we, we launched an enterprise business. We continue to develop out our consumer apps and really focus on that being an incredibly tight, simple uh, connection between the two. We are fortunate to work with a, a bunch of major pro sports teams. Dallas Cowboys, uh, Cleveland Cavs, Brooklyn Nets, many others, and um, also have have been building our UK business at that point. So we're we're fortunate to work with about half of the English Premier League teams.
0: So just for my knowledge, too, because I'm kind of learning on the fly here of some of these things, which is um, the economics between the resale market and the enterprise business that you're talking about, which is, I I believe, primary dealing with teams, right? You sign an agreement with them. They give you tickets on the primary market versus the secondary market how much money are you guys making on each? Like how does that whole process just work and what you can share? Obviously.
1: Yeah, of course. Ultimately the risk of uh, nitpicking, I look at it less as primary and secondary and more as enterprise and consumer, because ultimately from a fan's perspective, you shouldn't really care if you're getting a quote unquote secondary or primary ticket. You just want to go to a game and it's not like, I don't know, as a comparison, if if you're buying a used car, you do care (laughs) if it's primary or secondary. Uh, That's not the case here. So we're trying to show fans as much inventory as possible and ultimately keep uh, all of the data and uh, revenue associated with that um, in the surface area that's also visible to teams versus the historical model where a team might be with a legacy ticketer that is more restrictive around how they do secondary. And as a result, a lot of those secondary transactions, most of them are invisible to the team, leak outside the system, and the team is not a part of the revenue from that. And they're also not a part of the data that's captured as part of that.
0: Gotcha. So one of the things that I think uh, I certainly think about and other people think about when they look at these businesses is uh, what differentiates it, right? What is the difference between uh, keeping customers or someone going to a different platform? As you mentioned, everyone in most cases is just looking for the best deal, right? And it doesn't matter uh, to a lot of people, whether it's SeatGeek or one of your competitors necessarily. How do you think about keeping customers, right? Is it something where, hey, uh, we have a much better tech stack, we got them on mobile versus desktop? What Walk me through kind of just how you think about uh, eliminating churn in those
1: processes. First and foremost, like you mentioned, people want to get a good deal and they want want to see as much inventory as possible. So we have a huge landscape of inventory, both primary and secondary, and we think really competitive prices so that if you come to Geek, you know that you're going to get a good value. We help people understand if they're getting a good value with a feature called deal score, which rates every single ticket on good deal, bad deal.
0: Was anyone doing yeah, that right. when you did that, by the way, the deal score? No. Because no. that was genius. I'll just give you some credit. Good <laughs> good credit. <laughs> uh, and it, and once it hit, right, it was like, why wasn't anyone else doing this? And for people uh, who are listening and, and and Jack can correct me where I'm incorrect or where he wants to add something, uh, but a deal score was essentially taking different tickets and saying they're mispriced, right? There's some kind of inefficiency in the market here. We believe this ticket is worth two times more, or three times more, or four times more, and it's a good deal. And most ticket brokers traditionally, uh, your competitors, I assume in these cases, would say, hey, this is the bottom three or the bottom four tickets to get in, right? So if you're looking to go to a venue yeah. and you just want to get in, if you want to go to uh, Madison Square Garden to a Knicks game, they'll just give you the four cheapest tickets. But you guys said, hey, maybe they want to sit, uh, pay an extra $50 and get a better seat. It Was that the thought process?
1: Yeah, exactly. It was the best thing people could go off at that point was face value. You could say, okay, this face value for this was 80 and it costs 85, or whatever. But the reality is face value is often a pretty poor indication of how good a value something actually is. And also it changes, you know, if a team sold tickets at the beginning of the season at one price, but then they've had an incredible year and their record is much higher than folks anticipated, then face value is probably no longer a good indication of what you should be paying. So we wanted to give people a real time understanding of what a ticket was actually worth. Again, to your point, makes it easy to not just go if you want to find the cheapest ticket possible, but maybe you want to have an awesome night and sit, you know, for three rows and you can find the best deal in that situation as well.
0: I love it. I'm getting a uh, crash course and hopefully the listeners are too on uh, on the ticketing business, which I think is fascinating. <laughs> so, let's uh let's let's go through kind of COVID real quick, right? So, yeah. where were you when this happened? The the topic I always point to, especially being associated with sports, is the NBA, right? When they said, "Hey, we're shutting down. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to play games anymore." Do you remember where you were in kind of your original thought process?
1: <laughs> remember we had a board meeting the day uh, that the NBA made that choice and we were talking about it at that board meeting and you know we're we're certainly very concerned but i don't think any of us anticipated that i think it was correct me if i'm wrong it was 24 hours later that the nba had indefinitely canceled games and maybe another league had as well it happened really freaking quickly and um, i don't think anyone was was fully prepared for that
0: yeah and as an operator of this business is it just like Holy shit. Or is it, you know, let's, let's figure out what we can do, uh, and and make it right in the meantime.
1: Yeah. I mean, certainly, uh, first hour, there was definitely a holy shit moment or two, but you know, pretty quickly we had to decide how we were going to approach this. And we took what at the time was a bit of a scary approach. We, unlike most others that we compete with, we didn't cut back much. We pretty quickly raised a meaningful round of financing And doubled down and kept growing the business and kept hiring and signing teams, signing clients, building new features, all with an eye towards capturing market share and coming out of COVID with far and away the the strongest product. And it took a little bit of a leap of faith just because there was so much uncertainty at that time. But ultimately, we knew that at some point, we didn't know when COVID would be over, live events would return. It's a very fundamental thing that people need and they'd be back out there and we wanted to have the best product possible when that happened.
0: Gotcha. So walk me through, right? It sounds like uh, I'm assuming you, you mentioned part of the team grew, right? You're, you're developing new products, you're hiring certain people, but I'm also assuming at the same time you were at least scaling back some of the marketing expenses yeah. and, and some stuff like that, right? So walk me through your guys' position in the market uh, before COVID and now where we are, call it a year and a half, almost two years
1: later. Yep. What we've disclosed as part of the SPAC process that we're currently going through is that we increased our market share by about 50 or 60% pre versus post COVID. And I think a lot of that ties back to what we were just talking about, doubling down during the pandemic and ultimately making a better product. Gotcha. Uh,
0: okay. So one of the things I'm fascinated with, uh, with SeatGeek is I know uh, Ian Borthwick well. So ah, yeah, awesome. Ian's good a great guy, uh good friend of mine. I think he does a phenomenal job uh, marketing for SeatGeek. Obviously, uh, I hope that you agree. <laughs> you. But I would say that one of the things that you guys have done really well from a consumer standpoint is your marketing efforts. And you guys, I think, more than most companies, especially in this space, uh, took a different approach. And you worked with a lot of influencers. I know as part of the the, the, uh, the SPAC process in your investor presentation, you guys specifically called out you had a network of 2,400 influencers. Uh, your Gen Z base was nearly double all of your competitors as a percentage of total clients or consumers walk me through, uh, one, were you on board with this strategy from the beginning? (laughs) And if not, why not? And then two, like, just how
1: has it gone? I was on board, but I never imagined it could be as successful and large as it has been in the early days. And huge, Ian's the man, huge credit to him for having the vision to, to see that. I think the way we market, the way most companies market today is really different from 10 or 15 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago, we were buying display ads and no one's doing that anymore. That's gonna be true in the future. And influencer marketing, I think, is gonna be a much bigger category in three years, and five years than it is today. It's also something that's like super natural and authentic for us as a live entertainment company. You know, it's not like we're selling toilet paper, right? We're doing something that inherently is exciting and fun and people, you know, if you're an influencer and you're vlogging about a live event that you went to, it's a very natural thing for us to sponsor some of the best work I think our influencer team has done has been around sending people, you know, maybe to their, with their dad to the world series that they wouldn't have otherwise gone to blogging, taking video of that moment. Um, and then sharing it with everyone. It's totally what we stand for. It's a very natural thing for us to get behind. And it just so happens that it also really works from an ROI standpoint.
0: Yeah. And, and that's a good uh, point from the ROI standpoint, right? And one of the things uh, I work with sponsors, anyone who works with sponsors knows that, uh, a lot of people, I would say, have a have trouble attributing these things, right? And figuring out where not only is our sales coming from, but where the ROI is coming from, the impressions, all of that kind of stuff. Is that something that you guys struggled with on the influencer front? Or was it was it pretty obvious early on?
1: It's certainly harder than, say, search engine marketing. It's, you're never going to have that level of granularity. So it takes a bit of a leap of faith. I think we've gotten very good at it over the years. And I think we can do it better than anyone else, which ultimately allows us to make bigger bets. But also, it's it's important to keep in mind that I think how well influencer works varies a ton across companies. Cause if, if you don't have an authentic brand that influencers actually can credibly get behind, you, you might see bad ROI no matter what, even if you track that well or, or uh, poorly. So it's been a kind of perfect storm for us where we have a brand that, that influencers want to get behind. We want to get behind them and they have audiences that you know are actually spending money on tickets and, uh, and do that to some extent because we're, you know, part of their community and partnering with so many influencers.
0: Yeah, it's crazy uh, what being good at the internet can do, right? (laughs) And and that's literally what I call it, right? Because it's just like being good at the internet and that's what uh, a lot of these influencers are. But is there any, I gotta ask, is there any like one campaign where you were like, guys, this is uh, a little off map, this is a little ridiculous, like no?
1: I've never said no, it's possible. I I think our team is pretty good about, you know, knowing where where to draw the line. And, um, you know, ultimately one of the cool things I think about what Ian and his team do is that it's not, it's not like we're planning out many months in advance, what we're willing to do and not do it's often you know a YouTuber calling him at 10 or 11 at night. He's about to make a video. He wants to know if we'll sponsor it. And I think one thing that we've done, that's helped Ian and his team be successful is just enabling them to make those calls without needing approvals or a lot of process around that, knowing that ultimately if we're gonna be successful in a category like influencer marketing, that's that's how you got to do it.
0: I I was going to ask, so I'm happy you brought that up because I was curious about the process of this. Right. So one of the things that stuck out to me, I tweeted about it a while ago, uh, but during the NFL draft, Pat McAfee, who you guys have uh, or have had in the past sponsorship deals with or partnerships with, um, he did a uh, NFL draft. I forget what he called it, but it was a, a YouTube live stream. And it was much, much, much bigger than I think most people anticipated it would be. Uh, It was bigger
1: than the official NFL draft stream at the time, right? Yeah.
0: So like I I logged on and I was like another holy shit moment. Like, damn, this YouTube live stream thing is real. Uh, And he was just dominating from a numbers perspective. And I remember seeing, you know, I'm watching it for a little bit. I have both on and all of a sudden he has like breaking news that SeatGeek is sponsoring it and SeatGeek's back and SeatGeek's doing all this stuff. Um, And Ian was obviously having fun with it on Twitter and stuff, but it sounds like they have some type of uh, ability to make these calls on the go because of these relationships and stuff. And, and one of the things that I tweeted was legacy uh, companies, not only in the ticketing space, but in the media space, wouldn't be able to do this. Right. And it takes both sides, Pat, to be able to say, Hey, let's do this. And then you guys to say, okay, we have a deal. Let's go do it. How do you think about that kind of changing the landscape versus how people have done it in the past?
1: Yeah, I think it's exactly right. It's uh requires empowering those people to make those decisions, which means you need to have a lot of faith in in the team doing it. Uh, and also, it, we're, we're, in some sense, comfortable doing that because we have a long track record of making, you know, profitable and successful bets when it comes to influencer marketing. Whereas if that was our first one, it would probably be a little bit uncomfortable.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. So, all right, let's transition a little bit to talk about uh, your guys' recent plans to go public. So, you're going public through a SPAC, via SPAC. Why are you doing it?
1: We have been working towards being a public company for a long time. I think it's the right move for us. as We you know, grow and become more mature and decided to go this back route for a few reasons. One of the top ones was Redbird. The sponsor who we're working with just has a really long and successful track record in sports and entertainment. They own part of, uh, Fenway. They own part of, they started on location, uh, Fenway sports Legends, group, which, yeah. So just long track record and felt like they were kind of the perfect partner for us to do this with.
0: Okay. And I think SPACs, people have had enough time to be acquainted with them. <laughs> I think over the last two years, they've become much, much more popular. Uh, I don't have the numbers on me, but people can look. They they, they blew up last year and uh, maybe they've come down a little bit, but how does this process work for someone who's maybe
1: not as familiar with it? Yeah. You know, ultimately I did have- At a high level, it's just a different way of becoming public, and it's not inherently better or worse. There's basically three ways you can do it. It can be a direct listing, a traditional IPO, or a SPAC. And I think for any given company, which of those routes makes the most sense depends a bit on their particular circumstance. But in the end, you're a public company, just as you would be in those other routes. And ultimately, you're going to be judged by your success and the value you create. So in some sense, I think people have gotten a little bit too caught up on the mechanism and are missing the bigger picture of this is just another vehicle by which to become public.
0: Gotcha. And is there a reason why uh, maybe you haven't necessarily thought about it in this way in the past, but is there a reason why you believe SPACs have become more popular today than they were, say,
1: five or seven years ago? Hmm. It's a good question. I think to some extent, the fact that very successful companies did it and made it legitimate, helped others have confidence because in the more distant history, they had a bit of a negative patina associated with them of sort of only bad quote unquote companies become public via SPAC. And that really changed uh, uh, starting around two years ago. And as a result, more companies felt com- com- uh, comfortable going the same route.
0: Gotcha. And so, uh, what percentage of your business is mobile versus desktop now?
1: I haven't released that, but we've always been super mobile centric. I mean, okay. we, right now, if, if someone's starting to, company and they are telling you they're building a mobile app it's it's a very obvious it's like no of course you are but we built the first seeking mobile app at a time when it actually felt very non-obvious and remember we had an intense debate about whether or not we should do it one of the reasons it was a hard call is because at that point people really weren't spending meaningful money on phones and obviously we're not gonna you know people need to, to buy in your app if it's gonna monetize it all but we did it betting on the fact that that would change. And obviously it has changed quite a bit.
0: And I, I haven't heard this relative to Seek Geek specifically, but I think one of the things that most people can agree on is that uh, there's much more loyalty, as I mentioned before, on mobile versus desktop. And I would assume that is the case uh, even more when it comes to ticketing, when there is less kind of things diversifying the products. Are there any metrics that you guys have released or that you can share around uh, the conversion
1: rates relative to mobile
0: versus desktop?
1: I haven't released anything there, but I think you're exactly right that the typical use case on desktop might be someone who knows exactly what they want to go to and they type in a search on Google and they look at the results and they might compare deals. Whereas on mobile, it's much more often someone who just installs the app on their home screen and fires it open every day or every week when they're thinking about going to something versus, you know, comparing many different apps. So it's a much more one-to-one relationship than you would have uh, on desktop web.
0: Gotcha. And then, uh, I'm just going to fire. I'm just firing away here now. I don't know if you caught up with this, but (laughs) I I got a bunch of questions. Uh, I only want to go for about 30 minutes today, so I'm just going to keep going. Let's, let's talk enterprise sales. Uh, right. So you have the consumer side of the enterprise sale. I don't know if you've released how many you have. I know you mentioned some previously, the Cowboys, the Nets, uh, the Cavs, all of those. Is there a number that you need to get to, or are you going to look outside of, uh, domestic leagues and start going for other leagues also?
1: Got have got a, a little over 275 in terms of total clients. We're very focused on major pro sports clients, particularly here in the US, just because there's so much opportunity. So we currently, um, that, that's really where we've been focusing most of our sales efforts. And you, know, you mentioned international, we, we do take it a meaningful fraction of the English Premier League. We'll continue to, to sign more folks there. But particularly over the next year, we're, uh, we're focused on signing as many U.S. pro sports clients as possible.
0: And how does this work with U.S. sports leagues? Uh, you've obviously worked with NFL teams and NBA teams. Do they all sign their own individual deals?
1: So we have league relationships, uh, official league relationships with the NFL and Major League Soccer. But with a few exceptions, for the most part, teams are enabled to choose whatever company they want to be their ticketing partner, regardless of the league deal. So that means that we, of course, want to work with as many leagues as possible, as closely as possible, but that's not a necessary condition to us signing a given team.
0: Gotcha. And are these uh, exclusive deals or are they, and and the reason I'm asking too, is because uh, one partnership that sticks out is there's been a bunch recently, but the big one was crypto.com sponsored uh, the Staples Center in LA, right? And they paid a bunch of money for it. And part of it was they got a partnership with the teams too, right? And they're the official crypto provider of the teams. Do you guys look at it as a partnership with the team or is it strictly from just a uh, kind of, we're gonna resell your, we're gonna sell your tickets on the market standpoint?
1: Yeah, good question. We're generally working with both the venue and the team. And often there's a ton of overlap between those two things. But by way of example, one of our more recent clients is the Brooklyn Nets and Brooklyn sports and entertainment. We're ticketing all Nets games, but we're also ticketing all other events that come through the Barclays Center where the Nets play, which means that it's not just basketball. It's many other types of events as well.
0: Gotcha. Um, Okay. So, well, first off, I feel like, uh, do you go to like every sporting event in the world? (laughs) (laughs) I, I feel like that would be my reason to start a company like Seageek when I was younger.
1: It's the perk of the job, man. But it's also now I can't go without, you know, filing three different feature changes that, you know, that I've noticed or, or noticing any little thing that we could do better. Um, so. Uh,
0: Slightly paranoid while you're there. Yeah, also. exactly. That, that's awesome. Uh, okay. So let's touch on um, kind of the newer age stuff that people are talking a lot about. Uh, NFTs, crypto, blockchain, Web3, whatever you want to call it, the metaverse. There's a million different words <laughs> that you can refer to it as. Um, And apologies to the believers of anyone that I missed. (laughs) But (laughs) let's talk uh, NFT specifically first when it comes to tickets. So there's been some leagues, uh, some team owners, and people like that that have said, hey, NFTs could be a real application when it comes to ticketing. We think uh, on one side the consumer gets a more trustworthy process, you know you're not getting scammed, you can verify everything and not just trust. And then on the other side, the leagues and the teams have the ability to, uh, through the contract to continue to earn revenue from resales, right? So uh, you're the Brooklyn Nets, I buy a ticket from you, I go resell it to a friend, they have the ability to earn whatever percent they want from that resale market also. Have you talked to uh, other leagues or teams about this and just walk me through kind of their general reaction to these, uh, these new technolo- technology and features?
1: I think it makes a ton of sense. At a very first principles standpoint, you know, people historically collected ticket stubs to remember going to an event. You go to Game 7 of the World Series, that's a ticket you probably keep. Our industry has changed a lot in the last five years in that physical paper tickets have for the most part gone away something you know, nearly all tickets we sell now are digital. So you ostensibly lose the ability to have that keepsake, but NFTs bring it back and also just add a lot of possibility on top of it. Um, So we are big believers in NFTs as, you know, a, a collectible and a thing of value. And to your point, there's also lots of different ways to make the actual process of buying tickets and getting into an event and um, experiencing that event, part of this whole technology ecosystem. As an example, we have a product uh, called Rally that allows people to buy food and beverage when they're actually at a game or buy merchandise. That's something you could potentially attach to an NFT. Um, You can unlock different experiences with an event uh, via NFT. So it it ultimately allows a ticket to go from being a barcode to a little piece of software. And there's lots of possibility that you can load into that. Have
0: you guys started working on any of this tech?
1: Yeah, we're, I mean, we're, you know, we don't talk too much about what we're building, but I think it's super interesting. I think that it is absolutely going to be the bigger part of our industry and many industries over the coming years. And we want to be part of it.
0: Okay, so let's fast forward 10 years from now. What percentage of tickets, if any, for sporting events include uh, an NFT component to them?
1: I would guess a really substantial fraction, so... Yeah, I'm not sure I'd say hundred percent, but north of 80, would be my best guess. So that'll become, the the, reality
0: it- it'll essentially become the industry standard is to attach some sort of NFT component to digital tickets.
1: It's all, yeah, yes. And it's it's worth noting, it's not that hard to mint an NFT. You know, once you've established a barcode, you're just giving people optionality they didn't have before.
0: Gotcha. And is there anything you think of outside of, uh, there's obviously a collectible, a collectible component that I think of, right? Uh, I went to the Miami Heat game here for the season opener. And one of the things that FTX did as part of their sponsorship was they uh, gave everyone a t-shirt and there was a barcode on the back and you could scan it and you got an NFT for attending the game. And mm-hmm. it's meant as a collectible really, Right. Outside of that, what are the other use cases that you could see uh, professional sports teams being interested in?
1: I mentioned another second ago, but I think this idea of unlocking additional incremental experiences or loading other things onto an FT is potentially really interesting. And ultimately, um, I, I love this idea of moving from a ticket as a barcode to a piece of software. And I think that opens up a ton of possibilities.
0: And would one of those be like a rewards program?
1: Sure. could be. I mean, that's part of the beauty of it is you can, when, uh, you know, what can you accomplish with technology becomes the landscape. You can just do a lot of stuff that you couldn't do if it was just a physical ticket.
0: I'm just trying to make sure that, uh, the lead partners you guys are working with are thinking about this stuff.
1: <laughs> but <laughs> you think they are, I mean, you talk to a lot of people in this world, like, where do you think, uh, Do you think folks are giving it enough attention?
0: I like how you did that. You turned it on me.
1: Uh, But (laughs) but yes,
0: I I do. I think that there's uh, some people that are more educated about it than others, obviously. Um, But I think that most people can agree that there are some really unique use cases. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that I spend a lot of time talking to people about and thinking about are uh, the social component from a community aspect, right? And when you think about professional sports organizations and teams in general, they were really the first communities, right? You had the fandom that connected everyone to the players and there was all these uh, entertainment aspects to it and you really had that authentic connection. And I think they've lagged behind in a lot of use cases because there was never that direct relationship, really, right? A lot of it was one-sided. There was not really an input from the fans. And what we're seeing now is uh, NFTs obviously have all the components that we mentioned previously about collectibles and helping in the resale market from a ticketing perspective and all of that. That's fantastic. I think from a technology standpoint, that will become the norm. I completely agree with you. But I also think there's another aspect of this that will make it more, uh, more of a community, right? And we've seen social tokens come up. they they become much more popular uh, in regards to teams implementing them. Uh, the Patriots just signed the first one from a North American perspective. There's a bunch of European soccer clubs that have done the same thing. But I think the one thing that those lack is a lot of them do not have the ability to really vote on instrumental things, right? So Mm. when people bought uh, social tokens to start, and there's a few different companies that do this, but when people originally bought them for the bigger soccer clubs in Europe, they thought that they were gonna be voting on uh, very cool things like the starting lineup or the jerseys (laughs) they were gonna be wearing or things like this. And uh, that's not to say these companies were deceiving them because they were totally upfront and honest, but I think that the technology, that's what people were promised, right? This idea of, of a community, of a DAO-like structure giving you the ability to go in and really make a difference. And what a lot of these social tokens end up doing is you end up voting on uh, the pregame music, right? You end up voting <laughs> on the social media graphics for a player yeah, of the yeah. game, right? So, like, very, uh, very sort of small, minuscule, trivial things. Exactly. Yeah. So, I think the the people uh, that use that technology to make a, a, a more uh, communal relationship with the fans will do really well. And, like I said, I think that there are leagues and teams that are thinking about this in a really good way, uh, like. You know, we are talking about handing out NFTs. There's already teams that are doing this, right? The, the uh, Mavericks, oh. I believe, did this. The Heat did this, right? So there's teams that are already doing this, especially here in North America. I just think that uh, there's got to be like another step to it, right? Like it can't just be, I want to give you a collectible and maybe you'll go change it around. You got to really establish that relationship because at the end of the day, sports more than anything, more than any category, have the ability to really create an authentic relationship with between the players, the team, and the fans. So if you can harness that in some capacity, whether it's through a social token uh, or some other kind of uh, decentralized technology, I think NFTs are obviously one of those options also. But I think those are the people who will really end up benefiting yeah, from this.
1: 100%. I think it's right on. And I think you're, you're right that there's different layers of understanding. And a lot of people, I think, or at least some people are, Interested in it because it's a buzzword without a deep understanding of what's actually possible. Uh, there's a bit, definitely a bit of that in sports where people want to be cutting edge, but they don't really understand uh, the sort of fundamentals of, of what an FT is and why it's important. But there's a lot of people to do, and that's only going to increase.
0: Yeah, and, and I talked about this a little bit on the last podcast, but it was generally uh, – a lot of this is just people want to be seen as innovative, right? And not yeah, exactly. everyone really is. Exactly. And it's the same with the the last podcast was specifically around athletes being paid in Bitcoin. And right. When you really think about it, some of them are doing it from a a perspective of, yeah, they want to own Bitcoin. They believe in the asset, et cetera. But some of them are getting paid marketing money and they're using this as a as a way to uh, increase their cultural relevancy. Right. So which isn't wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't wrong at all. Right. That's totally cool and normal. Uh, But at the end of the day, I think from a technology perspective, you really have to invest in it because if you don't, it's going to end up just being a collectible. And I think they'll get passed by.
1: And that's, you know, as we think about this and and build towards it, we want to be very intentional about how is this going to ultimately make the industry better in a long term foundational way versus just, you know, minting NFTs for every ticket because it's a trendy thing to do. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Uh, So I ask every uh, entrepreneur, operator or, or someone who has built a business that comes on the show this it's hard, right? It's not easy. Uh, <laughs> you guys are going public. You're a very big company. Uh, I think the combined valuation of the new entity is going to be uh, 1.3 or 1.4 billion dollars. So a big, big company, obviously. Congrats to you and your co-founder and your entire team for doing that. But along that way, like I said, it's hard. Is there anything that stuck out where you're like, you know, anything crazy that you had to do to keep the business alive, any story where you're like, I can't believe we did that. Were there any near failures? Just like, talk to me a little bit about like what went into building this company from a, from a difficulty standpoint.
1: Yeah. Good question. A few things come to mind. I'll go way back. Early on, we were really betting on price forecasting. Basically the idea that you could optimally time the time you bought a, a, a ticket. We were inspired by this company Faircast, which, uh, was eventually bought by Microsoft, but they would basically tell you, oh, Joe wants to, you know, go to LA. Tickets are going to move up or down over the next few weeks. So you should buy it this time. So we spent really a year building that out on SeatGeek and ultimately just failed to capture anyone's imagination. I think part of the, the problem was that yeah, you could maybe time the the purchase slightly better one time versus another, but what really is going to determine if, if you got a good deal or not, is the specific seat you buy and of the 5,000 available, if you got the right one, which is a bit different from that airline use case. So given that that was really what we launched with, it took a lot of uh, sort of self reckoning to eventually decide to, to shut that down. But at one point we just pulled the plug, remove that as a feature of SeatGeek. But the silver lining was that we had realized that people actually wanted to get a good deal among the 5,000 tickets today versus time to purchase for a few weeks in the future. And that's what really led to Deal Score, which we talked about earlier, a way for people to find good values among everything available. And how long did it take you guys to build that product? We had four, over a year before we pulled it. And it was really the first year of our company. So it was a particularly sensitive year because that's when you're really fighting for your existential existence. And given that we launched for that and it was a core part of our pitch, it was uh, a particularly hard thing to kill.
0: Oh, and I got one more thing, actually. You're going to laugh at this, but- I do a little prep. I don't just come in here and wing it. All right. And as a part of my prep, I read a uh, CNN article (laughs) that said that you, it was 15 questions and it said, uh, there was two things that stood out to me and I want to clarify if these are still true and why you do them. Uh, because it was from a few years ago. It said that you sleep on the couch most nights because you find it too comfortable in bed and you don't want to get up. What's going on there? Is that true?
1: First of all, this article is a good example of uh, the the backstory here is we initially gave my answers to 15 questions. And I think the reporter came back and said, oh, they're not interesting enough. So we like brainstorms. All right. How can we spice these up? Should not have done that, because now I get more questions about this thing than I uh, ever could have imagined. But no, to get back to uh, what you asked, I no longer many years have slept on the couch.
0: Oh my God. That's amazing. That's, uh, that, to be honest, that's kind of what I expected is when you do these things, if it's not like something that's weird enough, like one of the ones that always sticks out to me is, uh, and it was a different structure article. This was, I believe it was New York times, but it was like a legit or New York magazine. It was like a legit article on, uh, John Foley, the Pel- Peloton CEO. And one of the things he said was, uh, every morning he gets up and he drinks like 40 sips of water from his hands from the sink. And it was the craziest thing I've ever read. And he was like, the quote was literally, uh, I found out in college that it, that it's really key to be hydrated. Right. And he said, so I go to the sink, I put water in my hands and I drink 40 sips or until I'm about to throw up. And I do that every morning. And I was like, dude, that's like, I get it, but that's kind of like, that's crazy. Like that's a little... 39
1: tips just doesn't get the job done. It's that 40th. Yeah. That the, really,
0: the 40th where he, where he has
1: to throw up. <laughs> uh,
0: but the second thing from the CNN thing is, do you still eat 15 egg whites every morning?
1: Yeah. I knew you were, you were going there. Unfortunately I do because I, <laughs> my all right. So that America. one was true. Yeah. yeah. No carb, man. You know, it's a great way to kick off the day. Just a ton of protein. Okay. So you, are you, you still do no carbs? Uh, you know, not religiously, but yeah. that was the origin of it. And I just kind of stuck with it.
0: I like it, man. It's uh, it's good to have habits like that. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. I've embarrassed you enough here at the end, so <laughs> I'll let you go. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, good luck with everything that's to come. I'm excited to see what you guys do next. Uh, and congrats on all your success so far.
1: Thanks, Joe. Love your work. Appreciate you having me on. Great.